episode of Hawkhound Book Club. I am joined by return guest Tyler Hummel. Welcome, Tyler. Been great to be back here. So great to have you. And thank you so much for recommending this month's read. This month we were reading Dawn, a Proton's Tale of All That Came to Be. I mean, that was that was a fun read. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been a while since I picked it up. I got it uh, when it came out last fall because I, I'm in touch with all the uh, university press websites and everything that you know comes out of the mainstream Christian publishing. So I end up either getting get, you know getting a chance to read it early or just page through it oh, and wow. all that. And uh, yeah, it was it was one of the things I was most excited to read last year when I heard the premise because it's it has a heck of a logline on the back. So that is. That's really cool. And that's awesome. And the book has such an interesting premise. So if you guys didn't get a chance to pick it up, uh, it basically takes the perspective of a proton at the beginning of creation, going throughout all of time and space, getting to experience history and just like following its journey from like its life in the first star to it becoming a carbon atom and then it getting to see the life of Christ, which I thought was really cool. I when I first picked it up, I was like, oh, cool. We'll get to see the seven days of creation. It's not just that. It, w- it was a lot. And it was very science heavy, which I really appreciated personally. Well, yeah, it's a curious collaboration between the uh, between the creators. All th- The three of them are all uh, Dutch academics. Uh, I, oh, wow. gonna tr- I'm, do you want me to try to uh, pronounce their names? <laughs> yeah, uh, you could try and pronounce it. I was going to be like, mm, I don't know. Cis Decker, Korean Orange. And Guildsports van den Brink. I love it. And, uh, Perfect. Nailed it. Fun fact. Uh, the Dutch used to use pronunciation of their names as a way to suss out German spies because the Germans couldn't pronounce their, the names of their cities. But uh, I guess that makes me a German spy. <laughs> <laughs> Same with me. But right. the interesting thing about the... So one of them is a theologian. Uh, another one is a f- astrophysicist. And the third one is a writer. So you can kind of see where the the collaboration between all three of them comes into place because they're all religious. They're all basically coming from the same, you know, soup, uh, intellectual soup background of, Mm -hmm. you know, science, cutting edge knowledge, storytelling. And it's clear that they kind of wanted to fuse all three together in a way that feels natural, particularly among a lot of our modern conversations on science and religion. This is... You, you either read it as a direct repudiation or just a alternative example of how the narratives of science and religion actually fit together in a way that's not necessarily awkward, but actually conducive to the narratives of the Bible. I like that. I mean, to me, there were parts that felt a little bit awkward, specifically when in their reimagining of the Garden of Eden, because I get that ge- that part of Genesis is supposed to be poetic and symbolic. But the idea that it wasn't like two people named Adam and Eve, uh, what were their names? It was like, well, Ubuntu and, and like this, I can't even remember her name. I mean, but, there's, a, there's a philological argument to be had that, you know, Adam and Eve in the original Hebrew just means man and woman. So that's it's so, fair. That's fair. So, there's, so you could, so the idea of just taking like, you know, a tribe, an African tribe in Ethiopia and picking and then the incarnation of Christ comes down to them and basically just awakens their conscience and declares them the first two humans. Right. It's not like, it's not necessarily a out there explanation, but it's definitely, right. it's definitely an interpretation. And I can definitely see people who are concerned with inerrancy being very uh, 
persnickety about that chapter in particular? There, there are parts of it that I find it's, I guess mostly it's a perspective I had never considered before because I, so much of my religious roots and upbringing is grounded in the Baptist church where, and, and is kind of grounded in like young earth creationism because, you know, we have everybody from like Ken Ham and everybody else who's like young earth creation, 100%. You can't question it. But at the same time, we have parts of science that are like, well, no, it's the earth is billions of years old. We have evidence of that. And I, I don't know. I struggle somewhere in the middle well, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm very public about the fact that I have heterodox opinions on creation. I mean, I, I'm, I try to, to thread the needle as a proponent of intelligent design, which I've said multiple times does not get you inv- invited to any parties. You either get <laughs> invited to the uh, the Ken Ham party or you get invited to the, the Lawrence Krauss party and there's no in between. You don't, yeah. you, don't get, you don't get a cookie for trying to be nice and, you know, resolve these two centuries old conflicts that are just caused, you know, m- endless debates and endless more heat than light. It's, 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 there's no, you know, there's no resolution to that. And especially as for me, as someone who's mm-hmm. trying to be in the middle and be like, you know, maybe our, maybe our hermeneutical differences are, or our grasp on hermeneutics is too strict and we need yeah. to just kind of, you know, lighten up a little bit and just kind of, you know, observe nature as it's revealed to us. But obviously that creates, hermeneutical issues and that's how you get like you know the episcopal church with their uh uh you know and anything goes ethic in the, in the most extreme cases not always uh, right. the, the, but there is that definitely that quarter of progressive christianity that's like basically just unitarian feel-good nonsense that's just there's no there's uh, no structure the there's well. no analysis. yeah god is what you feel jesus is a beautiful brown man there's no, uh, there's no, con- there, there's no conflict. You, you, you can do whatever you want. There's no, you know, that, that kind of, you know, if we, if we apply that kind of loose hermeneutic to the, the morals of Paul, then the Bible just falls apart completely. And there's right. no reason to read it at all, but well, it, it, it becomes stickier with something like the garden of Eden and Noah's Ark where a, 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 a strict materialist is going to look at these things and just scoff. Right. Well, and I think people need to remember that the Bible is such an immense collection and it's written in different styles. Like every chapter and even parts of books of the Bible have their own style. Parts are historical texts, parts are poetry, parts are meant to be symbolism. It's not all just one thing. And I think that's where people really struggle with that, especially like you were saying, if they're coming from the materialist perspective and not recognizing the means for the different books or what they're trying to convey. And it kind of betrays the fact that we're applying our modern perspectives on scripture to a bronze age book with a completely different set of set of cosmological assumptions and bleed through with the other, you know, religions surrounding it. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's flat earth ideas in the old Testament. Like, wait, really? Yeah, I mean, if you there's a, I'll have to send it to you later. But there's a uh, a researcher named Ben Stanhope who actually drew a approximation of the of the Hebrew cosmos, and it's a a flat Earth with a dome surrounded by water over it, and the Earth is held up by pillars over a pit of chaos. Like that's it's mm. it's, and the funny thing is, every once in a while, you will come across a Christian who actually does say the Bible is a flat Earth book. There's no compromise. We're not debating this. 
Like you know, there's a couple wow. of Twitter accounts that do that. Yeah. And they, they just go off the walls and I'm like, okay, we're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> they were, there's no, t- the reality is completely unmoored at this point. That's out of this world. I, I, I had never thought of it that way before, but like when you think about this idea that, you know, in Genesis, it describes God as separa- separating the waters from the waters. I always thought, thought in my mind, you know, that's God creating the ocean and creating the sky, right? And the sky can hold clouds and things like that. But I've heard people recently describe that as like this water layer that hovered around the earth. But when you describe it like that dome thing, that's crazy. Yeah, there's almost like a um, uh, Atlas element to it of like the uh, mm. the skies are being held up by the gods element to it. And that's kind of one of those, those questions is like, how many of these assumptions are being carried over from the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Greeks and the people that lived with the Jews, people that lived that were, you know, in the periphery because right. a lot of the, a lot of the language in the Old Testament is very distinctly uh, cultural, and it's not it's not in the sense that it's uh, untrue, just in the sense that it's speaking to a, like a culture in the way that we would use Shakespeare quotes sure. as, uh, as as shorthand. So it's, if, it's, if it's using Canaanite shorthand at times, you know, when it, like in Job when it says. God uh, holds up the Leviathan and Behemoth. Right. You know, that's a that's a some that's some sort of Canaanite expression. So it's it it, it can it, it, it's not literally saying he's holding up the you know the Canaanite god of chaos. It's it's a there's, right. a there's a literary element to it. So well, and there's so many literary elements like that throughout the Bible. I mean, followers of Christ being described as sheep and him being described as our shepherd is very much cultural to their time and their practices. I mean, I'm not a shepherd. You're not a shepherd. And I, I don't look like a sheep. I mean, I might have a little bit of hair, but you know. Yeah. And then there's elements <laughs> like the Nephilim that no one knows what the heck that's supposed Oof, to be. So. Right. Yeah. And so if you guys can tell, there's a lot going on in this book from just like that one conversation. Most of that wasn't even relevant to the book. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I think that's the cool thing about this book is that it just allows you to have these questions and like consider creation from a different perspective. I don't think it's trying to propose itself to be a new creation story. I do think it's trying to fit evolution into the creation story evolution the big bang um i'm sure there's a lot of ideas from astrophysics in there that i Mm -hmm. that just go over my head because but the first just few chapters of it you can probably speak to it better than i can as a someone with a science background are just oh my gosh perspective on the the formation of the universe and how it's describing how you know the 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 molecules were created in the, the second after the big bang and how, what the what the what the, the chaos and miasma of the universe was in the, for those first couple couple of uh, seconds, millennia, billions of years, and it it goes on for several chapters of just the description of how molecules are formed and how what it's like to pass through the the heart of a star as a proton and so so much stuff and a lot of it's just proton yeah. just getting bounced around and you know, it, so much collision theory the protons and neutrons are always bumping into each other talks about the stability of nuclei like protons nucleus only is stabilized when electrons start spinning around them like if you're in high school chemistry i can't recommend this book enough because it makes it more exciting and more tangible and oh my gosh it's just so fun this because the big bang is very much to me anyway 
both a very scientific and a very Christian idea. This idea that God spoke and there was light, like creating this infinitely small, infinitely dense piece of matter that contains all of the parts of creation just exploding and creating the universe. The way it's described is so beautiful and also so chaotic. I love it. It was really fun. It's also worth noting that that the idea of the Big Bang Theory is as our our much uh, our lovely Catholic friends usually disabuse this fact that it was created by a Catholic theologian, which is significant because at the time the leading secular theory of uh, creation was the steady state universe. Right. That, you know, nothing. Uh, everything was created as it w- was as existed as it was forever, and there was no logical beginning or end. There's no there's no entropy involved. There's no you know beginning because they obviously if you're I guess if you're a scientist, you want to come up with a theory that's not religious. So it's like, oh, you didn't, God didn't create the universe. It wasn't yeah. created at all. Yeah, the steady state approximation is way more atheistic than the Big Bang every time. Yeah, it's one. Of, it's one. That, that's another one of those great discussions of uh, where science and religion intersect. Because it turned out the uh, the Catholic theologian was right. <laughs> right. End, so. And, and so much of what proton experiences, like if gravity was just a little bit stronger or just a little bit weaker, if we didn't have electromagnetism, the weak and the nuclear forces all balancing one another out, it, it would all fall apart. This idea of fine tuning every aspect of creation just comes through so powerfully. And they and the authors hit on it time and time again, which I really appreciate. Because when you do sit back and just look at the universe for five seconds, it's really hard to imagine how it all happened by accident. Yeah, there's a lot of just meditation on that. I'll point out in the very early in the first chapter, there's some really that we kind of get the the framing device for Proton because Proton does not have a really strong perspective in the story as a character in the sense that he's not participating uh he's right. an observer so the entire time and from the time he's created he does not know what's happening or why <laughs> right so, yeah he has to have everybody telling him what's going on and i love the gossip chain that goes between all of the molecules like even from the beginning of time till you get to the end of the book the only way anybody learns anything is because somebody told them yeah so proton at one point and he asks two strangers about the past, and the uh, they said the ba- that that and a- after Ian's already passed, so he's just, he's just been sitting there trying to figure out what's happening, and finally someone explains to them that a creator causes it that that had brought the universe into being, and he just responds, "It was a bizarre story. I found it very hard to believe." <laughs> <laughs> but he but he believes it, right? Like he has no yeah. evidence to the contrary. No one tries to really disabuse him of the notion of a creator. I mean, he does meet some other protons and neutrons who are like, is the creator still working? Is the creator still doing things? But at no point do any of these subatomic particles actually doubt the existence of the creator. Yeah, I mean, from a literary perspective, the the central question of the book is, why hasn't the creator done the thing yet? Right. Which is is the thing that they keep coming back to over and over again, because there's two points in the book where the, the you know the finger of God comes down and it's and the world is set right as it should be and the proton the protons celebrate and they're like everything is the way it should be everything is happening as it should and in, for the rest of it everyone's just waiting and waiting and waiting and you can tell everyone's frustrated right. and, and exhausted and they're like I don't know what's happening we're in pain we're confused everything is just going off the walls in the wrong direction 
what is the creator doing? And they kind of have to remind themselves, you know, it happened once. He intervened. He's going to do it again. And that that's really, and that ends up being the central kind of rhythmic narrative of the piece is just this constant repetition of like, when is the creator going to deliver upon his promise? And what does that look like? And there's a lot of false starts that have, that have a lot of fascinating philosophical uh, implications to it. I, for sure. I, yeah, I, I just love the start of this book. It's so interesting. And then what's that? I like the description of when they finally get to earth and then they're seeing all of these meteors come crashing down. And I think one of the neutrons like, Hey, have you noticed it's been kind of quiet lately? Like things haven't been happening. And it's because the planet Jupiter is now protecting the earth from the incoming meteorites. I, as a science nerd, I just loved that little addition. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how quickly you want to blast through this, but I kind of, I, I, I was thinking of the, uh, the parts of the dinosaurs, but that might be cutting it out too far. Oh, did that? I guess I'm trying to remember the order of operations. Did the giant meteorite happen before or after? I guess it had to have happened before Jupiter. I would imagine it's before because there's, a, there's, yeah. the, there's the chaos period and then it calms down. Right. And that's when that's when life starts to kind of begin accumulating. RNA becomes in, comes into existence and proton basically just starts like jumping between like carbon atoms. So. Right. I, yeah, I love the process of them describing the first cell. Again, this is one of the places where I kind of struggle with the book because, and again, I'm coming from the, that Baptist background where I don't really know if God would use evolution as like this primordial soup that all things arose from, or if he would create individual kinds where then evolution could branch off in that way. I definitely think he used evolution in some aspect. This is just a way of thinking about it I hadn't considered before. I don't know about you. Well, like I said, I, I'm I've been an uh, intelligent uh, design proponent yeah. for a long while now for various reasons I've written about online, none of which have made anyone happy. So, so know, when I think about intelligent design, I think of just like God created things. I think you must mean intelligent design differently from the way I've understood well, in, it. Well, obviously, in, in, at least in a, in a writ large sense, I mean, I, I believe in evolution to some, de- at least to, to some degree, because there's different theories of evolution and what exactly, how exactly it played out. Some of them are more amenable to Christianity than others. Usually when people say that evolution and Christianity are not amenable, they're usually picking the harshest version of uh, evolutionary theory and saying like, God couldn't possibly have created a world this awful and, you know, chaotic and evil and violent. And they kind of just really drum up the, uh, the violence and horror aspect of it. And there, there are ways, there are ways you can thread that needle in a cosmological sense that aren't as aggressive as that. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, that's just an interesting take I hadn't considered before. And I appreciate that perspective because at least you're willing to say, maybe we just don't know everything yet and that's okay. Yeah, and I don't, and I think that and the mistake too many generations of Christians have made in my, in my perspective is uh, being, is having too tight of a grasp. Yes. You go back, you go back to the Scopes Monkey Trial and you, the state of Tennessee makes it illegal to teach evolution in any capacity 
And so the ACLU and, uh, you know, half the, half the, uh, and the press descend down on the state and basically start parading monkeys to the streets of Tennessee. And oh my say, gosh, like, I didn't hear about that. Oh, That's the Scopes crazy. monkey trial is insane. I, I've actually been to the courthouse where it happened. It's, it was, a <sighs> it was an absolute show. And, um, of course, I guess so. uh, I, I'm forgetting his name, but the, uh, the, the 1920s equivalent of Christopher Hitchens is running around basically just mocking the rubes and being like, oh, these rubes with their sky god and boomsticks and, you know, not, they don't know anything about, you know, science and reality and a lot, a lot of, to, to, some, to a degree, some of it's drummed up, but the fact that the state of Tennessee sure. was made it illegal at all to teach evolution until the 1960s meant that it was, uh, I mean, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of those, uh, awkward things that, you know, the state legislator eventually just cleans up in hindsight is like, maybe we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> even, even just like as an intellect, as a, you know, something to consider, just maybe we should just let people make up their minds to themselves. But I, I, I get it. I mean, if you're, if there, there's a certain kind of Christianity that says that you need to take the Bible at its, at its word. And by that, it means, you know, we're not entertaining the abstracts, ideas behind it or anything. We're taking it as the written word as it exists. And I understand that perspective a lot. I have a lot of family members and people smarter than me, frankly, frankly, who believe that. And so I'm not going to just deride it as nonsensical people. There, there are smart people who believe that, but it, it, as far as any sort of discourse with the intelligentsia and the secular world goes, it makes it very hard to have certain conversations. If, we have to, you know, relitigate all this, and it just, yeah. it just creates it just creates heat. It's, it's not really worth it at this point, in my opinion. So I just have a kind of an I just have a you know, some of it might be true, some of it might not. It's not the point. So and that really is the thing. It's not the point. It's not like it's a question of whether or not Christ exists. It's not even a question of whether or not Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's just a question about how the earth came to be. And my faith, my salvation doesn't hinge on the answer to that question. Just no. as long as God created it, he could do it however he wants. It's not a salvation question. That's no. the best way to put it. Yeah. Not a salvation question for sure. Um, but yeah, the way the book approaches science and the fine tuning argument, I really appreciated the bit about the dinosaurs. I mean, it's pretty standard what people think about evolution. I liked um, their response to it. I get protons and the subatomic particles response to it because they were like, creation was so good. And now we have to basically restart. Like, what is God doing? What is the creator doing? Well, the great setup in that is the idea that they don't, they, at this point in the story, they know that God has created the world to support a basic, some sort of, species that's supposed to interact with him right. and they look at the dinosaurs and their first thought is is that it is that the thing god was spent all this time creating the, right you know the big uh, loud monsters with no intelligence and no 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 free will just exactly. like rawr, i'm gonna eat you and so they they're, they're confused about that and then they're really confused when the meteorite kills them all because they're like well we just we got all this way and now everything is falling apart what's happening what's going on right they, obviously, then they start seeing the first mammals starting to crawl around, and that kind of gives them the clue that, okay, it's not over yet. We're not there. We've been, right. spent a very long time, but we're not there yet. Yeah. It, so, 
yeah, they go through the process of evolution. They see mammals. And then we start getting like the first hominids. And then we get Homo sapien. And again, this is where I'm trying to like appreciate their different perspective, but also I have questions. Like to me, if God didn't create mankind very specially and set it aside, where does the idea, okay, I've created mankind in my image, right? We are created in the image of God kind of come into play. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, I mean, difficult questions to litigate and mm-hmm. they're, it's, these are the objections that any reasonable person is going to have to raise philosophically if they want to sure. make these uh, ideas kind of fit together in a sort of meaningful way, but not impossible to litigate, just very hard. <laughs> I wonder if they think of the idea that we are created in the, in the image of God, less in the physical image and more in the spiritual image, because don't like proton or one of the other subatomic particles rename homo sapiens, like homo day or something like that. Like now there are totally separate species there. They've ascended to this higher plane because now they've interacted with the creator and that's what makes them set apart. That sounds that sounds right. It's, but I, I don't recall that line, but that that sounds like the the kind of the logic that you get behind. And because I, 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 but I don't know how much of the book is spending kind of litigating the issue of the image sure. of God. So, I, so probably not at all. It was just a question I had while I was no, reading it, it. It's great. I mean, I, I I'd have to go back and find that section to figure out what the what the ruling is in terms of what the book's trying to say on it. But I don't recall. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, if you guys who are listening or watching later, definitely let us know your thoughts down in the comments, what you guys thought about this book, what you guys think about these big questions. Um, Definitely things like that. Then we get to like when God actually starts talking to humans. And again, one of the changes they make is instead of having the tree of life, they have this well of life. Whoa. I get that the tree of life is supposed to be symbolic, but isn't a well just as symbolic? I don't know what the symbolism of that's supposed to mean offhand. It's, it, I mean, the first the, pro- the first problem you're going to run into is what we said earlier, is that anyone that is reading this from an inerrantist perspective is going to say, you changed the word of God! Sure, you sure. So it's like, it, there, I mean, it's an, it's an adaptation. I'm trying to find the logic of the change to like yeah, kind of I mean, understand the thought process behind it. I mean, I imagine it has to do with the idea of wells be, a, a well being like probably a rarer resource mm. in early humanity than a tree. That's fair. I mean, I mean, I, I, I mean I, I, that's a base assumption. I know there's interviews with the people, the creators out there. I'm sure they've said something to the effect of what the symbolism of the of the well is. But I would imagine it's, it, but the, it's the same basic. Uh, morale that you get. Oh, out yeah, of it. yeah. It, same it morale reminds me a lot of the parable of the solid land from Paralandra, if you've read that, Mm-mm. where, uh, well, that's, that's C.S. Lewis's retelling where he does, uh, the book of Genesis, but it's set on Venus. Oh, uh, cool. And, and, uh, the parable is that the Adam and Eve are told not to, that they, they, they live on an, on a, on a world with, uh, basically it's a giant ocean and they live on these little islands that kind of sway and move with the water. Mm-hmm. And they're told that that that, they're, that the one prescription is not to sleep on the solid land, and it's their temptation essentially. So I was like, if you do oh. that, you you'll yeah. you'll you'll go through the same fall as what the Earthlings did. 
and they have to figure that out for themselves. But right. it's, it's kind of that same logic. And, they, and I know the fact that the creators cited the Space Trilogy as one of their inspirations. So I think they just took the basic moral and, uh, and just kind of transplanted it into sure. what would a African tribe circa, you know, 1000 BC be considered to be their ver- the most important thing that they would be tempted to consume. But I, 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 yeah. I, 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 symbolically, though, I'm not sure what the well would symbolize because there's a kind of a descent imagery to it, which is kind of interesting. But you, I, I, I imagine, I, I imagine like, you know, any, you know, people like Jonathan Peugeot who do like the sim, the symbol, the symbology of scripture would probably have a field day with that. But right. Well, and I mean, Jesus is often described as like the true water of life and things like that. So yeah, I could see them wanting to draw the symbolism to yeah. water more concretely than to some fruit that we don't even know what kind of fruit it is. There's a Christological implication there as well. Right. So it's it's not just a complete butt pull. It's a, there's a point to it. So Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, we do get the the fall there. And the way the subatomic particles experience that, again, is through that secondhand knowledge, someone else telling them and them finding out. Do you ever, did you, or I don't know about you, but I wondered sometimes if they were getting the full truth of everything as they were receiving things secondhand. Because if you think about how humans pass things down the grapevine, you know, uh, if you've ever played telephone with anybody, you tell someone Oreo cookies and you end up with banana chips at the other end. It's like, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I don't think the narrators in this are unreliable. Mm-hmm. If only just because the, the way the the authors wrote the book does not really create the option for that kind of unreliability. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things, I mean, one of the things I found when I did the research, when they were interviewed, was that they said that part of the goal was to make it a, a accessible, non-literary text. Sure. Like, which is actually when I when I first read it and reviewed it, that was one of my general problems with the book is that it felt like this book has like an infinite number of possibilities you can do with it in terms of. Oh, my gosh, I know. And it's so short. It's it's short. It's brisk. It's really to the point. And it's not very literary. Like you could probably do, you know, an infinite jest style book. Right. About the perspective of the of the protons interpreting history from their perspective and having some sort of secondary effect on it as a result right. of everything that's happening. And that's not really, but that's not really what's happening. I, they're very, very reactive characters. So I don't think that they're, I don't think the narrators are unreliable in that sense. So I think it's just them saying yeah. like relating what's happened. Granted that also, they've also never had a fall. So the protons are probably more reliable than the humans. That was going to be my second question. So the, because there's no unreliability, between the way the subatomic particles communicate. That means, right, we know there is no fall. But I guess the whole question of them even having a consciousness to begin with is like a whole nother level of like, what? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a fictionalization. It's not that much of a throw of a, you know, of an ask. Sure. I mean, the, the, the philosophical questions beyond the, the framing device are probably more troubling. I mean, every, every time I go back and read this, the, the thing that squawks in my ear loudest is just every time I've ever heard someone say, there's no death before the fall. 
And I'm just like, well, in this book, there is. Right. Okay. That's a question I hadn't thought of because you're right. There's tons of death before the fall. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a philosophical question that people will, that probably breaks more of these conversations more than anything else, because it's a, it's taken as an assumption that the create, that God's creatures in an unfallen state are not capable of death and they're functionally immortal by right of the fact that they are living in his presence, which, you know, which the, that creates some interpretive questions if you're not going to take that for granted. And, and I've, and like I, and I've said in some of my articles online, the fact that I have philosophical quibbles with death before the fall means I can't commune in certain churches because they have a very strict interpretation of that. Like, you know, Lutherans, they, <laughs> they uh, you, you aren't allowed to not believe in death before the fall if you want to be a Lutheran. So that's so interesting. I've actually never really considered that as like a question. Like, Baptists aren't confessional, though. You just it's yeah. like you aren't you aren't required to believe anything in order to commune. So we're required to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's yes, you know. But I but I mean I right. mean in terms of confessional standards and like the right. way that like a Catholic would have them. You aren't you, like right. you are that you have to believe an entire catechism to join that church or catechism to be, to join the Lutherans. But you know, it's it, it, I, I don't I don't mean that as an insult, just as a know, yeah, as a as a, as a ecumenical approach but death before the fall and i think that i actually think this squares the circle very well by saying that basically immortality is something that could have been given to us by being brought into the presence of the divine and it kind of it kind of like adds another Mm -hmm. chapter to that history of being like okay earth had death but death isn't bad in the way people think it is it's just a part of life right and by being brought into the presence of god you're being given a greater understanding of life and you, in, in a way you're being, you know, being given, given a, tr- a fruit from the tree of good and evil, not the tree of life. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That uh, was going to be my question. Like, oh, why would God even bother to create the tree of life? If just being in his presence was the tree of life, you know? I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting interpretation that the, the YouTuber inspiring philosophy has where he says that uh, in order to be immortal in the garden of Eden, you had to continually eat from the tree, the, the tree of life. Yeah, or, or or because the tree makes you immortal. It's the it's where that comes from. Which I could, I you know, that's not a. It's not in, an infallible interpretation, but at least kind of offers a way to square it. Where you say, okay, you're in the you're in the garden, you have been welcomed into the garden. You're immortal while you're in the garden, and then when you leave the garden, you're mortal again. So it, right. and, it, and it's at least kind of sussed out as a possibility in this. That you know the, the incarnation, and it's pretty explicitly implied to be Jesus, which is an, which is a very interesting implication in this. That when you're in the presence of the incarnation, you're more godly and you're moving towards Him, whereas when the incarnation leaves, everyone squabbles and just descends into back into their humanity. Yeah, that's fair. Well, even in the presence of Christ, people squabbled and did all kinds of terrible things. So yeah. There's that too. Um, but yeah, so the they get to see lots of history. They also get to miss out on lots of history because they're like shoved in a broom closet for several hundred years. That part kind of cracks me up. Yeah, there's, they have to, the authors have to find ways to constantly sideline the, uh, the protons so that the proton yeah. can show up whenever they need it to. So it, it basically skips from Garden of Eden to Abraham and then to David 
and then more or less to the New Testament. <laughs> right. It's like, bang, we missed out on a lot. But it, they hit enough of the highlights so you get to see the promise God made with Abraham and his family to create the line of David, right? And then you get the promise with David. And then we immediately jump to Christ. Uh, I love the small detail of them being like a dust particle on a spider web while Jesus is being born. I don't know. I just loved that. Yeah, it's they 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 the ways the pl- the ways they plant proton into the plot is fascinating. It's it's just constant. Yeah. And to me, like, again, as a science nerd, just the constant recycling of carbon, it never breaks from what I would consider, like, the natural cycling of an element like carbon. It doesn't, it, they never try and incorporate it in something that wouldn't readily have carbon. Now, we live on a planet where almost everything has carbon, so there's kind of a catch-22 there, but... It's not like he was embedded in a sword or something like that, right? That is clearly okay, you know. He, a sword's he not going to be made. I was going to say he was embedded in the uh, the fence, but yeah, <laughs> but wood has cellulose and that's made of yeah, 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 carbon. exactly, yeah. And he was embedded in the stick that Jesus walked with. Again, there's no biblical evidence for a stick. If you're going to be like really on oh, whatever, it's a stick. Exactly, whatever, it's a stick. <laughs> But I loved that. He is a shepherd. Shepherds carry sticks. I mean, when you're going on long treks across miles and miles, you're probably going to want a walking stick. Just saying. Although I pulled up the the chapter where Jesus is born. And and once again, we have the doubt dialogue. I'm afraid we're at a dead end. I don't think the creator has assessed the situation well. (laughs) Which he said just before Jesus is born. Right. That they never doubt that God exists, but they do doubt his intelligence a lot. <laughs> that's a different problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different problem. That's that's not atheism, that's heresy. <laughs> but you know, Christians do that all the time. It's like, God, why did you put me here? How could you put me here? Are you yeah. sure you want me here? Are you sure you want this, God? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I don't. I don't recall that much from. It's been a while since I read through the uh, the sections on Christ's ministry. Do you have any thoughts on the way they portray it? It's, it's it's at times like when they just do the biblical elements, it feels like it's just kind of going through the motions of places. Yeah. Like it's like you know, it's you know, we know what happens. It's. It. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it is. It's very much going through the motions. Uh, Like you said, one of the things that kind of bothered me about the book is just how brisk it is. It's like, but you could have said more instead of just being like, yeah, man, the the very casual way people speak instead of, you know, trying to create a dialect or anything like that is I understand the intent is to reach the widest audience possible. And that makes sense based on what they were trying to do. It's just like as someone who likes to read, I'm like, I want more. There's a 600 word novel in here. That's yes. Just, that's just them going through the philosophical implications of everything and just digging deeper into everything that's happening. But maybe what maybe you wouldn't have a cutesy novel about a proton commenting about uh, you know how Jesus how how God doesn't know what he's doing. But it would right. probably. 
it would probably be a little bit uh, have to be a little more literary than that. Yeah, because this could have been a very different book, but I don't think it would have been as easily accessible to as many people. Because when you look at this book, like it's a hundred sixty pages. Yeah, hundred sixty pages, and a bunch of that is like conversation with the authors, discussion questions, things like that. And so this book is very accessible to all types of readers. Like I would even give this to a middle schooler. That's how accessible I feel like the book is. And so you can use this as a launching off point to have real discussions with all types of people, even if they're not super big readers. Yeah. I imagine there are parts that would definitely throw people, particularly if, like if you aren't, if you don't have any science knowledge, those first few chapters would be a little bit rough, but yeah, I don't think they're explained in such a way that it's not attainable, that it's not comprehensible. It's just a lot and kind of chaotic and confusing, but that's kind of how the start of creation would feel like. There's a lot going on. Everything's moving. It's confusing. You don't really get a sense of what's going on until real time has passed, like lots of time, things have settled out that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously things go play out more or less as they, you, you expect through a lot of the later chapters. Yeah. Um, there's some interesting stuff when we get to John and writing to a book of revelation. That was cool. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of just a conversation between John and another guy because while well, he's in exile, mm-hmm. which is, which is, it's fascinating because it kind of gives some uh, prophesying about what it, we, you know, but what the, uh, can expect going into the future. Right. Yeah. He says that, I mean, like we've always heard Christ is coming again soon. The end is coming soon. And it's so funny because then after John, we get this massive jump into the future. They're on a spaceship and people are like, Oh, is Christ ever going to come back? And proton and the other subatomic particles are like, Two thousand years. That's all you've waited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that, that, I don't want to spoil too much about the last chapter because it's it's a great send off that really kind of brings the whole book together, in my opinion, yeah. and really just kind of summarizes the journey of the entire book as from Proton's perspective. But it does. I love that reflection of like you know we hear humans complain about how God isn't with them and how they have to wait so long, but their lives are only about a hundred years. We're like six billion. Right. <laughs> we're <laughs> you know, still we, here. <laughs> we're still here, and we've seen it work. We've seen right. him intervene. Like we we know what's going to happen. Even in, we, we, you you just have to have patience. And and the, and the the last couple like lines. I don't want to go too deep into it, but it's mm. just it's very haunting the way they describe it. It's like that, just the way they they envision the the, the sense of anxiety of being separ- of growing separation from your creator. It's very yeah. cold. Yeah, it's that's one of those things where you need to read the book and just read those last few lines for yourself type thing because the way it makes you feel as they are separated is just like it is really sad and kind of ha- haunting yeah. like you said. Uh w- just to go back just a little bit. I like the way it is the incarnation of Christ is described because they describe it as the inverse of the big bang 
And I just love that because you ha- to have the Big Bang, you have all of creation and all of matter in this teeny tiny focal point before it explodes into the universe. And then to have God, who is literally holding the universe in his hands, come down into a human body is like the inversion of the Big Bang. It's like having this massive, powerful God come in and occupy this teeny tiny infinitely small space. I thought that was really profound. Oh yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that in here. It's very, it's clearly put a lot of thought even to it, even though it's very digestible and short. I know we kind of knocked on its literary ability, but there, there are parts like that. When I I reviewed it, I also noted that I think this is something of a, a subject of, uh, of translation error, not in the sense that it's, badly translated just in the sense that i think the translator went with them with a very simple language that's not very pretty to Uh. listen to it's i'm curious how this sounds in the original dutch because i imagine like that if there might be some more literary quality to the language in that but when you read it in english it's clear that that it's it's been translated from another language and so it just kind of it almost reads choppy it's almost like it does that's actually a good point because you see all of these reviews on the back that's like gripping read, imaginative tour de force. I'm like, did we read the same book? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't want to discount it too much because I remember when I came out, I was disappointed in it and I, it just it stuck with me though. So it, it really is a good book. It, like we've talked about, it evokes some really interesting questions. It asks you to think about creation in a different way that is not typical of the modern church, especially as it's tried to separate science from faith or faith is, or science has tried to separate itself from faith so intensely. It's a mutually hostile relationship. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Which is sad because, and this is what I like most of all about the book is that it says you can have both. You can recognize the value of science. You can recognize the value of what we discovered and still have your faith, like the two don't have to be in conflict. And that's a wonderful thing. It's one of those, it's, you know, it, it feels nowadays like you have to take a side in this very complicated battle between two different, yeah. completely opposing understandings of the world and trying to thread them together. It, people don't want you to do it. They, they, right. they, there's, you're, you're, there's active cultural and political pressure not to. So, it's hard to come up with ideas that make that cohesively suggest how this fits together, but it really does. The, the, I think that this is, it, it, without even saying anything dogmatically, it's just, this, is like, this book's a really great example of just showing what it could look like, what a, what a possible solution to these questions are, and I, and I appreciate that a lot. I do too. And it's not like it's the answer to all questions. It doesn't address questions of the flood or the Tower of Babel or like any other questions you might have about the Old Testament or about creation history. But it does address some of them in possible answers. And I don't think it even proposes itself to be the end all be all of answers. It's just giving you the option that, you know, these two things can work together. You just have to be willing to let go of like your dogmatic beliefs and see the possibilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to give to be healed too much crap for having dogmatic beliefs, just because it's oh you sure, know, 
it's like I said, you know, when you if, if you if you aren't going to take the Bible seriously, you wind up with, you know, pride flag uh, yeah. stoles yeah. in Methodist Church and the Sparkle Creed and yeah. everything that everything that winds up on cursed Protestant nonsense on Twitter. It's we 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 have to we we need strict standards to keep things like that away. And I and like I said, I met so many people who are strict six-day creationists, young earth creationists right. who have that opinion because of that reason. Like we, we have to take the Bible as it says, because we believe it's true. And I do too. Uh, it's just that I think that we have as, as uh, the older traditions, like uh, the older liturgical traditions would say, nature is a form of revelation. It's I not, totally agree. it's not the, the necessarily the revelation because obviously there's things in it that aren't going to point us to God necessarily, but it's right. not lies. It's not filled with lies. As, as I always, I always say, it's like, you know, you know, no one, you know, God didn't put dinosaurs into the ground to test your faith. He, <laughs> he, he, he put them there to turn them into oil clearly, but clearly. <laughs> so it's not like it, so that it's not that there's God did not create the universe to make us confused. We are, yeah. we are just confused because we don't know how to interpret it properly. We're confused because we're people have tried to use science to explain away God. And so then yeah. Christians had to double down and be like, oh, well, science can't be true because you can't use it to explain away God. And that's not the answer either. Science explains God. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's helpful right now that we have a lot of good stories that are about what happens when science is completely unmoored from any sort of morality or ethics like uh, Oppenheimer, or I was talking right. in the pre-show about the Cormac McCarthy's new novel, The Passenger, how, you know, when you have this completely modernist, bleak more, uh, universe and an, an understanding of the world, you kind of end up with a moral vision that's similar to T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland. It's just it's complete moral degeneracy and exhaustion and ennui. It's just this, there, there's yeah. no way, when you hit rock bottom, you realize that there's no way to, live to um, to live life in a way that's morally consistent and you do wind up with moral atrocities as a result of that so i mean it, it, it's i mean it's it, these are all complicated conversations obviously and it, you don't need to go into oppenheimer or to to to, to, just, to justify the book but that should just tell you how interesting of a book it is if nothing else because we've had so many different interesting conversations based on 160 pages it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and we we've grumbled about it, and we've uh, but we still like it. So yeah, and I think that just speaks to how interesting it is because there are parts of it you can be frustrated with. There are parts of it you can be like, "Well, this could have been better," but you still get something out of it at the end of the day. I got quite a lot out of it. It definitely invoked new questions for me. Things I'm like, ooh, maybe I want to talk about that on Quirks of Creation or like dig more into these different types of things. I had fun I with that. I want the George R.R. Martin cut that's 10,000. That's 10,000. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> we need to get a hold of, I'm, I'm not going to try and say their names because I'm Digger not a German spy. And Von Den <laughs> we need to get a hold of them and be like, okay, I want the director's cut. The Snyder Cut, you know, I want the long one. <laughs> Give me yeah. a thousand pages of War and Peace of Proton exploring everything. Oh man, I mean, I, I, I that might that book might actually be impossible to write. I don't know, like that. 
It's like there, there, there are stories out there that are so huge in their ambition that you can't, that they can't possibly be written by a human being. But I felt like that about the great divorce and that book also could have, or that it's more like a short story that could have been way longer, but if it had been longer, I, I don't know if it would have been as impactful. Maybe not. That's, that's definitely a book that's tempting to want more of just because of how many moral examples are in it. But yeah. When you know a book is good when you want more of it. Yeah, that's the catch twenty two. Yeah. You want the you don't want it to you don't you want you don't want it to end because you're engaged with it. Right. Those are the best kinds of books. So any last thoughts about Dawn? Uh don't please don't call me a heretic. I'm I, I cry when people say mean things about me in the comments. Aww, I, uh, you're not a heretic, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just, uh, I mean, the Catholics may come here, but they call me a heretic too. So I don't care. (laughs) I love all my Catholic friends. Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today, Tyler. It's been super fun. Indeed. Thank you. What do you got going on? Where can people find you, follow you, all that good stuff? Uh, If you want to just have a general sense of what I've got going on, find me on Twitter at AntisocialCritI. I think probably below me, I can't see the YouTube right now. Uh, I I am a a journalist by day, critic by night. Uh, I have a semi-regular podcast that's been on hold for a while. My last episode was was actually with John Walton, who's a uh, theologian from uh, Wheaton College who has a lot of interesting ideas in his book, uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1, which is very, which is basically my take on creation. That's worth reading if you, have, if you haven't read it. It's on, there's an audio book on it on Audible that's probably free. Um, but yeah, I, if you want to read my stuff, uh, I just had a piece on at Goldwyn View about uh, Cohen McCarthy's new book that, we, that I briefly mentioned. I have a review on Oppenheimer that just went up at Geeks Under Grace. That would that that's also relevant. So yeah, definitely check out my stuff. And I'm all I'm all I'm all, I'm all over the internet. Just look up my name, and you'll I'll probably appear somewhere. I love it. I, your Oppenheimer review was really good. It encouraged me to go to the theater and see it, and it was great. So guys, definitely check that out. And don't forget to tune in later this week to Quirks of Creations because we're talking about dragons and dinosaurs. So that's going to be super fun. I'm excited. Uh, Well, thank you so much for joining me again and hope to see you guys next month for our next book. Don't know what it's going to be. It's probably going to be Lightbringer by Pierce Brown because I know that's what me, PGA, Elise and I are all reading right now. So make sure you go pick that up if you haven't already and we'll see you guys then.